Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of the Sculpies podcast, where we talk all things medicine and science with your host, Timothy Chu. Now, at the time of recording this podcast, I've just recently gotten over my cold, and I'm also getting an interview tomorrow for a position that I've been interested in for a while. So, yay, a moment of celebration. Anyway, for today's podcast, we have guest speaker Dr. Sharak Shamasian, owner of Shamasian Academic Consulting. After a fun story to introduce Dr. Shamasian, we will go over topics such as why Dr. Shamasian decided to pursue the path of becoming an academic advisor, whether we should comment on mental health in our applications, what the purpose of an academic consultant is, and what they even do, and so much more. Please don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, share, and all that good stuff. It really helps the algorithm and will get the information out quicker. Regardless, hope you all enjoy. So let's just picture this. You're a scared little man applying for medical school. At this point of your life, money is sort of scarce. So scarce, in fact, that your wallet is tethered to your belt for fear that it will be overcome by the buoyancy force of air. Investing in a medical school application advisor is like way out of the picture, but you need any help you can get. So you decide to start searching for some answers on good old YouTube. Is it bad if I email the school for an update on my applications? What even is the application process? Why even is the application process? Is there anything that I'm missing? You start feeling the weight of not being good enough. You feel doubt coursing through your mind. You feel weak for feeling, and then you start feeling weak for feeling that you're weak for feeling. You quietly cry out, I wish someone would just give me a chance. But you're a fighter, and so you move on. You compose yourself and happen across a video where a man with dark curly hair and an ever-inviting smile says, it's going to be okay. And in that moment, those little words of encouragement just makes you feel a little more prepared and ready to take your next steps. It makes you feel like you're not alone. Now, surprise, surprise, the scared little man is me, or at least was me. And that other man with the dark curly hair and the ever-inviting smile is today's guest, Dr. Shirag Shamasian. I was fortunate to have found Dr. Shamasian's content and advice exactly when I happened to need it. It was roughly after my seventh medical school rejection, where I felt that perhaps it may be best to submit my application for a review and see what I was potentially doing wrong. Within that same email, I also added a little side remark asking Dr. Shamasian if he would be interested in joining the podcast, and he graciously agreed. I believe that today's episode has a lot of helpful nuggets to unpack for anyone trying to get into medical school, and I honestly cannot wait for you all to hear the bars that Dr. Shamasian is about to spit. Anyway, with that all being said, Dr. Sharag Shamasian, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Dr. Shamasian. Uh, I primarily help students get into medical school. Um, I've been doing this work for a long, long time, uh, you know, primarily through you know, pre-med advising with, you know, assisting with course selection and extracurricular development and all the way through MCAT tutoring and comprehensive application support. And it's something that I've just, you know, grown to increasingly fall in love with. Um, a little more about me on a personal side. So I'm a Los Angelino, born and raised. I know before we started recording here, Tim, I was telling you about being a, a giant Laker fan and we're recording this in early 2022, so I'm not an excited Laker fan uh, at the moment, but uh, you know, I'm I'm always optimistic that we'll turn it around. So it's just really nice to be here. I was wondering how you went from the traditional pre-med route 
going into that and then eventually finding yourself saying, maybe I don't want to go into medicine. Mm. How did yeah. that all go about for you? Yeah, it's a loaded question. Um, and, and thank you for asking it because, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't pre-planned. You know, I think a lot of us, when we're growing up, we have this clear vision for ourselves, right? Or at least we, you know, we think we do. We're going to go to this great school for undergrad. We're going to then go to medical school. We're going to become this kind of surgeon and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's, you know, comes from inside. It comes from within us. Uh, sometimes it's sort of dictated to us. It might be a parent who told us, well, here are the choices, you know, doctor, dentist, engineer, whatever. I sometimes laugh and call that the immigrant menu. You know, like if you mm. have immigrant parents, you're sort of given some options and you're like, all right, I guess these are the options. And I always loved healthcare. When I was a little kid, I would read, you know, anatomy books and all this kind of stuff. And it was just a, a major interest of mine. And, you know, I excelled in the sciences in school. And I was, you know, a, a science major in college. And I ended up, you know, wrapping up at Cornell as a human development major. My concentration was neurological development. So essentially brain development. And as you know, I was going through school, I was becoming increasingly fascinated with, with mental health conditions and neurological conditions and so on. And having grown up with Tourette syndrome, I was sort of always personally curious about this kind of stuff. And then as I was taking more coursework and doing uh, more research on the side of neurology and mental health and neuroscience in general, I just like started getting deeper and deeper and down that rat rabbit hole. You know, I had done very well. I had a, you know, three, nine at Cornell and was gearing up to apply. And I think I, you know, would have been successful uh, had I gone through with it. But I realized I know what I want to do. I know I want to specialize in assisting people with mental health conditions. I would likely become a psychiatrist if I went into medical school. Um, but I realized that there was a, a more direct path to doing that. And, and so a PhD in clinical psych uh, offered that opportunity to me. Whereas, you know, if I had gone to medical school, I'd have to still learn more about, I don't know, bones and the heart and, you know, all these kinds of stuff that obviously I found interesting, but not to the same degree. And that was, um, that was uh, really the story of it. Um, but even within clinical psychology, I was staying pretty true to, you know, the neurosciences. I was doing a lot of work in brain imaging, development of ADHD in the brain and sex differences and all these kinds of things. Um, and then doing work in diagnostic algorithms. So involving a lot of stats. So I was still very deep, like working with physicians all the time and doing my internships and all these kinds of residencies in, in hospitals settings and so on. I never saw it as like not being involved in medicine. It was just a different mm. sort of angle in the medical field. The admission side is, is a little more interesting. It's sort of like a bug I had that, that never left me. So going back to these immigrant parents uh, that I have, they, you know, they had high expectations for me as far as going to great schools, going to, you know, great graduate programs and, you know, doing very well career-wise and all this kind of stuff, but they did not have the blueprint on how to make that happen, right? So mm. they uh, they started their higher education in, in Lebanon where they immigrated from. And so they didn't really know how to write essays or the SAT and the ACT and all this kind of stuff. And so my brother and I were self-taught in this process. And so we were able to achieve our own successes. You know, my brother actually ended up going to medical school after UCLA for undergrad. And so he's an emergency, pediatric emergency physician by training. And so it was something where I had to learn it myself. And I also came from a low to middle income background. And it's not like we had resources to hire a consultant or, or anything like that. 
Um, but we were self-taught if we want to make it happen. I also learned how to get a ton of scholarships and graduated debt-free. And it was interesting, Tim, you know, when I was having success, there were a lot of people coming up to me essentially saying, you know, oh, like, how'd you do it? Could you help me too? I have these aspirations too. So there are all these people who like had high aspirations, but didn't know necessarily where to turn. Cause I grew up in a, in basically an all Armenian community in LA and I was helping people. Then they started telling their friends and their cousins and so on. And it's just kind of a word of mouth thing, something I did as a, as a labor of love. Over time, what ended up happening is one, my interest in it was growing. I sort of loved sort of what's behind the curtain with the admissions process. It feels a little bit secretive. And so that I think that was always intriguing to me, like what goes behind mm. closed doors kind of thing. And it's actually very true. It is intriguing in that way. Um, but then also I started noticing that I was fielding the same questions over and over again. What should mm. I write about in my personal statement? What's a good interview? Who should I get rec letters from? Yada, yada. And I found myself like, okay, I feel like I'm answering these same questions over and over again. I wish people had a good resource to, you know, mm. review prior to talking to me. And, you know, I'm talking seven to 10 years ago, there just wasn't anything good online. Um, as far mm. as, you know, if you search something, you'd get like five tips, you know, here are five tips to write a personal statement, be yourself you know, everyone else has taken, you know, and these kinds of things. And so I noticed that this wasn't valuable to people. And so I was like, you know what, I'll just start writing stuff. I'll send it to people. And something very interesting happened. Mind you, I have no business training. I have no SEO or computer uh, science or website training or anything like that. It's all self-taught now, but I started writing about it. And I remember getting an email from someone completely random on the internet. And they were like, Hey, I'm interested in your services. And I was like, who are you? And how did you find me? Cause you're not a cousin <laughs> of anyone. You're not anyone's friend mm -hmm. that I know. And they're like, Oh, I just found your stuff online. When I Googled it, I was like, what? Cause you know, when you, you know, when you don't know how SEO works and how to show up in Google, it's just kind of one of those things. You just assume stuff exists and whatever you, you don't realize that someone's putting it out there. And there's a way that, you know, Google, you know, figures out what they should feature and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And, you know, that was a, that was a time for me when I was like, I'm getting really excited about discussing this stuff and essentially unlocking the mystery behind the admissions process. And our students are being very successful when I help them. And I was like, well, I feel like I'm doing good work and there's a lot of demand and I enjoy it. And so I just started writing more and more and more. And over time, got more and more sophisticated with, with all these different areas, including on the SEO side of things. And, and that's just kind of how it grew. We don't spend a dollar on advertising. It's all word of mouth and the quality of our content. And that's something that I, I've lived by. So I, I realized that's a little bit of a longer story uh, about how I got here, but it was just organic. I did it mm. because I needed to learn it. Uh, and then I helped others and loved it more and more over time. And as it grew and, you know, our students were finding success, I just found myself increasingly drawn to it. And here I am today. When you were at that fork in the road yeah. where you're like, oh man, I can go into medical school, which uh, is your brother older or younger? He's older. He's three years older. Yeah. So then you had an added pressure of, oh, I should probably go into medical school because of the immigrant layout, your brother but then you decided somehow in that very moment to go into psychology because that is where your passions lay. 
what was that whole experience like? Did you find support from your family? And how did you even navigate communicating that with your family of like, oh, I'm not going the route that we all thought yeah. I was? It, it's funny you ask because, you know, in hindsight, when you look at the way it all shakes out and when people see that you're doing well, you know, career-wise, et cetera, it's like, haha, like, of course, like, no big deal. But in the moment, it's really stressful. Um, you know, when your parents have an expectation for you and, and you've been telling people your whole life, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And um, when you have that expectation for yourself, you've been working towards it. It's very jarring for everyone when you make mm. that switch. Like I knew deep down that it was the right decision because that's where my interests were, uh, you know, and, and that I would really enjoy it. But it was very difficult, um, especially for my dad, right? He, I remember him saying like, how long, what PhD? Like, how long is this program? I was like, oh, you know, five to seven years, depending on how fast you complete it. He's like, but why would you do this? Like, mm. uh, med school is like four years and the residency is like three, four. It's like, it's the same time. I was like, well, it's not a plan B. It's not because I'm not getting, it's because it's a different thing that I want to do more. Mm. Um, my mom, I think she, my mom just gen, has a general and I love her for this. Like she just generally trusts me like, Oh, you know, hmm. I trust you to, you know, figure it out. You know, I'm sure there's a good reason behind it or whatever. And, um, and then, you know, I, I talked to her about, yeah. And you know, it's fully funded. And oh, she's like, that's nice. Cause you know, your older brother has a lot of loans and all this kind of stuff. So I think they were just like kind of warming up, but I'm also a little bit uh, stubborn in that way. Like if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like people are um, necessarily going to stop me. And, and that's worked well, you know, in my favor, but at the time it's, that's not the only decision that I've made, uh, you know, that was different from my expected path. Like when I started my PhD, I thought that, you know, I would one day become a faculty somewhere, faculty mm -hmm. member somewhere, or be a university president or whatever. Um, and then I thought I would go into neuropsychology and do that kind of assessment work clinically. And then I started getting into diagnostics. So I went away from that. I got a job after grad school. And, and then at some point, you know, I left that job and, you know, did the, uh, started doing this work full time. So there were a series of very difficult decisions to get here. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like no med school, but all of a sudden I ended up as a consultant, right? Like there were a lot of key decisions at various points and this is important for, you know, people to think about as they're making their decision, not just about medical school, but other stuff mm. too, you know, make decisions based on the information you have at that moment. Sometimes we wish that we have it all figured out. I would go to this school. I would do residency at this place. I would marry this person. I would settle here. I would you can make those plans, but you know, life has a funny way of, you know, steering you in different directions, your interests change over time. So make decisions based on the variables you have at the moment. Right. Mm. And don't think about, well, but in four years, well, that all this kind of stuff, um, you know, that's something that, you know, I've, I've sort of trusted my gut along the way. Uh, and that doesn't mean it hasn't been difficult. It just means that when, when I knew deep down, yeah, in the moment, like, this is what I know. This is how I feel. Yes, I thought I would always do this thing, but that's not jiving with where my head's at right now or where my mm -hmm. heart is right now. And, uh, you know, following those, following that decision-making style has been great for me. I just think that it's really cool to have people come out and talk about their successful journeys to medicine, but also in other areas, especially unexpected areas of research and pursuit. Because as Dr. Shamasian stated, 
life is one heck of a ride and you never really know how it's all going to play out until after the fact. You bring up your love for psychology and learning about the brain and imaging. And I'm assuming you're a nerd, like most of us who are listening 100%. to the podcast. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Has there been anything that you learned in your PhD program where you're like, whoa, I use this a lot more than I thought I would. And it's so yeah. applicable in my interactions with students. Yeah. You know, sometimes people ask me like, oh, like, do you feel like you let psychology go? Do you ever use it in your work? Um, absolutely. Probably the stuff that sticks with me the most is just, uh, this might sound very basic, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, just like reflecting and validating how people feel, um, I think is mm. very important because a lot of times I've observed like students and, you know, I see this a lot in the pre-med community in particular, people want answers. They mm. don't like gray areas. I'm obviously I'm generalizing here, but a lot of pre-med students do not like gray areas. They like black and white. Is my score good enough? Is my GPA that do I need this guy? Do what if I wrote my essay about this? Is this a good topic? Is this a bad topic? It's very black and white kinds of questions. And something like admissions is inherently so gray. Mm. You can do so many things perfectly and still not get in or mm. not into the school or whatever. And so, you know, one of the things that I feel very comfortable in, um, just generally speaking, is a, a gray area in life. Um, I'm mm. okay with things not being black and white. So, um, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, I, I think a lot about, okay, students are going through a lot and they're looking for answers and they want to go through all this. They want to go through their list of questions, but let's just sit with it for a moment. Let's sit with, you know, how are you feeling about this? Where's your head at? Um, what are some of your current concerns as a prospective reapplicant? What do you think happened? Why is that? You know, just sitting and listening and yeah, that sucks. It sucks that you're going through this. It's a real, you know, that just really connecting with people, I think is important because sometimes we get lost in the weeds of all the to-dos of the application process mm. that we forget that there's someone who's just experiencing emotional highs and lows. And it's just the kind of crazy thing. Um, I mean, if you want a nerdy, you know, psychology term, we can think about, you know, a locus of control, right? So mm. this might've come up in a, an MCAT prep. So external versus internal locus of control. Like, do I have control over my account or is it just like wherever the wind blows me with the admissions process? That's going to, because it can sometimes feel like you're powerless you're kind of naked, right? You take your courses, you have your stats, you write your essays, you got your rec letters, your school list, and then you're naked. They're, yeah. you know, behind closed doors, evaluating you, no control. You're like, ah, this is fixed. You know, anyway, I have no chance. And, you know, I'm, I'm part of a ORM group, not a URM group. And yeah, my stats are this, but it's not like that. Always, someone's always better than me. It can feel so helpless. And I tell students, I get that there are variables completely outside of your control, like how the person's feeling that day, but our students have gotten in with a great track record over the years that it's not quite random. And so there is a lot in our power, mm. including the story we tell about ourselves through essays and so on. And I just want to make sure that students feel that they buy into that, because if mm. you don't believe it, you're not going to try. Right. If you believe mm -hmm. that something is not possible, you know, the person you ask on a date, say yes, or something like that, you're either not going to try or you're going to do a poor job at it. 
right? Mm. And so I think buying into the possibility is just really encouraging for a lot of people. Talking about trying and buying into the possibility, I recently had to exercise this muscle myself when I asked my girlfriend to be my Valentine. And well, she agreed. Now, I was super nervous, especially since it felt a little quick. I mean, we've only dated for two years. Anyway, to comment on these sage words of advice by Dr. Shamasian, the concept of internal and external locus of control is so interesting to me. I've recently read The Art of Living, which is essentially a compilation of Stoic philosophy by Epictetus, and I particularly enjoyed the concept, in layman's terms, that life and its events is not what makes us sad or happy, but rather it's our interpretation of life and its events that ultimately have the power to make us sad or happy. So, having an internal locus of control and constantly reiterating that in your students seems like a good bit of advice to get you through. Also, wanted to just note how cool it is that Dr. Shamasian automatically ditched the jargon and went for the concept of simply being with another person in the moment. And, as I'm constantly learning day in and day out, just because a concept is simple does not mean it is trivial. So basically just another thing to add to my daily pursuits. Another thing that you talked about was um, your Tourette's. And I think that that's a really interesting topic because one of the videos that I watched of yours that I found a lot of inspiration from was your healthy approach to dealing with Tourette's and not just dealing with it, but communicating it with people. Has that experience helped you in helping students and in general how has that helped you just become the person that you are today yeah huge influence um you know when i was eight or nine years old when i started first exhibiting these kinds of tics you know i i grew up like i said in a setting where you know my parents might not have been as familiar there wasn't really like a uh you know acceptance within my community about, you know, various neurological conditions or mental health conditions or whatever the case might be. And so people would, you know, call it a bad habit, snap out of it, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it was pretty discouraging, honestly. And you know, I remember seeing multiple physicians and took like the third or fourth person who immediately knew what it was, but others just like kind of made up all these answers and diagnoses and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And for me, it was really cool to know that it was a, there was a label, there was a thing that explained it. Mm. Um, and I knew sort of the prognosis and I knew, uh, you know, how serious it was or wasn't and all this kind of stuff. And so that just gave me, um, you know, a really nice, I think, sense of peace when I found out that it was just a thing, you know, mm. um, and, you know, as I grew up with it, there were different level periods of life where it was harder, right? So during adolescence, a lot of ticks can exacerbate and so on. So high school was a little bit harder getting teased, all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, teachers saying, you know, you're not going to amount to anything, you're making excuses. There are some pretty horrible things said, legitimately mm -hmm. horrible things said. And I don't know, to me, I just think it was very motivating in that I have a when people, you know, I'm the kind of person who like, you tell me I can't and I'll do it kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, and to me, it was like, all right, sounds good. And I'm going to prove, you know, this person wrong or I'll show them or whatever the case might be. I think that, you know, to a degree that's healthy, you know, having that, that fire, you don't want to always be, you know, you don't want to just be motivated by proving people wrong, of course, uh, mm. but having some of that fire, I think is really valuable. And the reason I talk about it a lot is not just to help people with Tourette syndrome, um, because so I think people with Tourette syndrome, I think more often than not, don't go to college. 
or certainly don't graduate. And there are actually no differences in like intelligence and all that kind of stuff, right? So people are capable. It's just whether due to social stigma or difficulties managing or whatever the case might be, they just sort of like don't achieve what they're capable of. And so I always just thought if, okay, if I can put it out there and normalize these things and show people, you can be just fine and do all right uh, in spite or because of this kind of thing, you know, perhaps my message will inspire other people because mm -hmm. there's always, you know, there's always excuses and reasons we can come up with you know, about why we're not going to do X or Y or Z, right? That mm -hmm. comes up all the time, but it's our job to like, take the reins and say, you know what? damn the statistics, you know, right. I don't, I don't care. Like, I, I believe I'm going to make it happen. And I need to buy into that story, you know? And so mm -hmm. that's, that's my hope for, for putting the story out there. Damn the statistics. That has to be the quote of the day. I just love that goosebump inducing fire that people get when they're driven. When it seems that it would literally take everything to stop that individual. And you honestly sort of believe them. In that video that um, you were talking about your Tourette's, uh, you talk about a anecdotal experience where someone said, Hey, don't cuss me out. And your wife was not too happy with it. Yeah. And I'm assuming that maybe when you were younger, you might've had that response of like, yo, that's a jerk move. Like, why are you saying that to me? Sure. But I feel like within that re response, you were able to sort of look at it and be like, it's okay. Like, let's just communicate it out. Yeah. When did you eventually start transitioning into that thing of maybe let's not fight fire with fire, but start like watering it a bit and like yeah. mellow it out, educationally bring it up. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're in junior high, high school, people say nasty things. And so I think I got really good at quipping back, um, you know, and, and coming up with sharp responses or whatever the case might be. But it was really in college where I think I was just like getting more and more comfortable in my own skin and um, you know, people like making friends from like different backgrounds. And I just felt like, um, you know, I was part of a community that was maybe a little bit more receptive overall and started talking about it, but also growing in my education and, and learning about like how some of these things come up and feeling more comfortable about like, you know, yeah, something is, I guess, technically wrong with me. I, you know, I put wrong in quotes, um, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's a big problem, right? Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that I wanted to educate people on because there are also so many misconceptions, right? Like it was around the time when I was going to college where Tourette's was also kind of getting more popular in the media. You'd mm. have characters on TV shows or in movies who would, who would, you know, cuss uncontrollably. And so I think there were just like some natural uh, sort of opportunities to tell people about like, actually, that's a pretty rare symptom. Or whatever mm. and and so oh what is that like does it hurt and blah blah like people ask me all these kinds of questions and so it's just a comfortable way for me to talk about all these different things um and and you know i, I guess i probably just like grew older and stopped caring as much about what mm. people thought I'm, I'm not quite sure but i would say around college is when i started getting more comfortable talking about it and this talk about destigmatization, like mm -hmm. demystifying processes. Um, one of the most common things I hear in medical school or in pre-med students, the fear of talking about mental health, mm. um, especially within just STEM in general or in career pathways, it's always a terrifying thing to bring up something that can be seen as a liability yeah. to a potential 
professor or admissions committee member or employer. And you go on like websites and you go on Reddit and people are saying, oh, totally talk about your mental health. Like there's a lot of resources and it's really like if it helped you get into medical school and pursue that, go for it. But then you have other people who are saying, generalize it. You don't have to put it down. You don't want to litter your application with red flags. Have you realized, oh, talking about mental health might be a better thing or a bad thing to do on your application? Mm. No black, it's not a black and white thing. Again, mm. one of these classic application things, well, should I or should I not? Um, the answer is maybe, or it depends, which everyone mm. hates, but I like. Um, so <laughs> what does it depend on? Number one, what is the condition that matters? Mm. Uh, so like, you know, there are going to be different stigmas associated with different things. So talking about Picard syndrome is probably more acceptable or more accepted, I should say, um, then I don't know, disclosing that you have bipolar disorder or mm. something like that, that's going to be considered a more serious mental illness rather than a neurological condition, that kind of thing. Um, and by the way, this is not a, a judgment on my part, just about sort of in our population, how the average person is going to view the severity mm. uh, of one or the other. That's what I'm saying. So right. what, what you're disclosing matters. Um, the other thing that I will say is you have to ask yourself, what is the point? Uh, and I don't mean like, what's the point of that? Why would you even talk? That's not what I mean. It's the, what is your goal? What's your point in sharing this or disclosing this condition? Because if the point is, well, it was harder for me. Look how much harder it was for me. Not good enough. But if the goal is to say, here's my experience and the perspective it gave me and how this is how I've applied that perspective to help other people that can be very powerful. And so it just depends on how you're going to use it um, rather than should I, or should I not? What's the point? Why do you need to talk about that? Yes, certainly it was meaningful in your life, but is it required to deliver the theme of your application story? If the answer is yes, great. The answer is no, we need to talk some more. Mm. And that's how I think about it. Another gray area. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I had a question about um, a very controversial topic. I know we sort of prefaced the meet today, yeah. um, but it's about this concept of reverse discrimination. Do you see reverse discrimination as a thing that is present in medical school? And if it was, do you think that it's okay to sort of quote unquote hurt an identifiable subgroup over another so that we can have a more diverse healthcare? Yeah, this is such a complex question. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, no matter how you discuss it, there will be, you know, uh, there are some comments we get in that on our article on med school acceptance rates by race. And there seems to be a lot of anger, um, you know, on, on both sides about this, you know. Oftentimes, so just to back up a little bit and, and get a little bit more granular, um, the sort of the overarching or the most common thing you see is like, well, if you're part of certain overrepresented groups, ORM groups, whether, um, you know, you identify as Asian or white or all this kind of stuff, the, your, your, the, the stats, the average stats of accepted students tend to be higher than members of certain other groups, you know, URM or underrepresented minority groups, whether it's, you know, black or native American or um, that kind of, you know, or people who identify with those groups. And 
So the controversy is essentially like, is it easier for one group and is it harder for one group? Um, and if so, is this fair? Is it not fair? All this kind of stuff, right? So medical schools will officially say, no, holistic admissions, we consider everything. And that's a catch-all. And I think when people say, they're like, yeah, we get it. You think about everything. But there's a little bit of an eye roll, if we're being honest. Mm. of like, yeah, holistic, we know what that means. You know, it's just, it's going to be harder for me. It's going to be easier for this group or whatever the case might be. You start hearing this kind of rhetoric. Mm. And and so, but if you look at the stats, you know, I get it. Like if you're, you know, we know just data wise that the average, you know, GPA and MCAT score for an accepted Asian applicant uh, is going to be higher than, you know, the average stats of an applicant from a different background. Um, and those are just facts. Um, the data shows that time and time again. And so are there higher expectations? I mean, sure. I mean, you can come to that conclusion, um, but then you start looking a little bit deeper and you look at, well, you know, how does, how does maybe income play into this kind of stuff? Um, you know, certain groups that are ORM, do they on average have higher income, all this kind of stuff, or the groups that are URM, do they on, on average have lower income? Well, how does that affect opportunities and the way we should evaluate these profiles, et cetera. We're also generalizing, right? There are members mm -hmm. of URM groups that are high income. There are members of ORM groups that are low income. So it gets very complicated very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, and, and so there's a lot of anger about like, God, why is it hard? It should be, you know, the smartest person in the room. Cause if I'm going to ask my doctor to, you know, diagnose cancer, or perform a surgery, I don't care about the color of their skin. I just want them to be the smartest, you know, person in the room or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the, usually the, the flip as well, like it's important to have diversity. It's not all about the, you know, the best test scores and all this kind of stuff. Patients from different backgrounds want to be seen by physicians who look like them. There's a lot of value mm -hmm. in that. There's going to be maybe higher rates of like trust or treatment adherence or whatever the case might be, or even younger people seeing, oh, there are doctors who look like me. Um, mm -hmm. When I was growing up, there weren't doctors who look like me and that's valuable to drawing people mm -hmm. to the field. So my, my position is, look, my job is to help people get into medical school, period. Mm -hmm. And so my job is to not say, oh, you know, you're from this background. You got to do it this way. You're from this background. Now you'll be fine. I don't mm. treat it that way. I treat it as like, okay, let's, let's get that out of the picture for a moment. Um, and let's get back to basics. What qualities do you want to communicate in your application? What do you want them to walk away with, irrespective of your ethnic or racial background? And mm. if you talk, the more personal you get, the more you go into your more innermost thoughts and feelings, most meaningful experiences, your interactions with diverse uh, people uh, and the, the way that's shaped you, your, your personal ethnicity starts becoming less of a factor because mm. you've shown them more as a person who you are. And I will say too, you know, we, we support more Asian students than students from any other group. And, you know, and that's not super surprising, you know, like given that, you know, Asian students apply at high rates to medical school. So do white students and all that kind of stuff, but our students get in at very high rates. Mm -hmm. And if it were the case where it was, you know, especially difficult for one group or another, I don't think the, the track record would have, uh, you know, shaken out the way it has. So I'm pretty proud of our students for honestly being willing to, to, to go there, so to speak, mm. and talking about their background, getting personal in their applications and, 
uh, you know, really internalizing that, yeah, it is possible for them too, despite what, you know, the numbers might suggest and so on and so forth. So my, you know, so my intention is not to pick a side or anything like that, but it's to support students with getting in. And, you know, mm -hmm. an initiative we launched in the fall last year too, is we pledged, um, you know, $100,000 to initiatives that promote diversity uh, for mm -hmm. support for students from low-income backgrounds and ethnic minority backgrounds, you know, with offering, um, you know, partial financial aid to students who qualify for the family assistance program, mm -hmm. um, you know, a bunch of initiatives, you know, writing more guides to serve students who might not have access to great materials. We have all of the MCAT content you would ever need. You don't even need to buy a book. It's all free on our site. So mm -hmm. these are some things that we've taken um, or things we've done to promote equity in the field and and to to develop great future doctors, regardless of color of skin or whatever. I've recently done a lot of research on this because I wanted to have a healthier and more broadened perspective on the whole thing, because yeah. I have a lot of people who come to me under the table and they're like, yeah, dude, it must be rough because you're a ORM. And I'm like, mm. huh? And I really never saw it that way because I felt like for me to complain about the statistical quote unquote unfairness in like this one weird year of my life where I'm applying to medical school while completely disregarding the statistical unfairnesses that compounded for someone since they were born to application yep. seems a bit hypocritical to me. And I think that if people get into the position, I celebrate for them. And whenever I get there, I hope they celebrate for me. And yep. it's sing Kumbaya. Obviously, it's a little more vulnerable and painful. Yeah, if yeah, of course. Dedicated so much time into your application, but it's totally a fun process. Of course. Of course. Um, and, you know, I've noticed too over the years, Tim, I should end by saying, you know, the, again, the generalization is, ORM, higher stats, harder for them, URM, lower stats. That's not always the case. I know mm. plenty of students who are URM or who identify as coming from a URM background who are have ridiculously high stats, exceptionally capable, just as much as everyone else, despite, uh, despite all these kinds. Of, and so I also encourage people not to box folks up of, oh, you look like this, you must have XYZ background, all this kind of stuff and, and getting to know people and understanding what they bring to the table. And, and that's what really I hope for, for the quote unquote, holistic admissions process. When we talk about the admissions process in general, or the application yep. cycle, I think especially mental health fluctuates during the application process, sure. especially since we're sort of like this weird unified organism where we have Reddit all connecting us. Do you have a suggestion for students and how often do you deal with that side of application process? Every day. You know, students mm. get a lot of bad advice. Um, they compare themselves to people on SDN and Reddit. I'm not saying SDN's all good or all bad or Reddit's all good or all bad. It's just hard to distinguish who is misinformed and who's informed, mm. who's giving good advice, individual circumstances. It can be a scary place. You know, if you want to go and feel bad, it's a good place to go. If it's a place, if you want to be confused, it's a good place to go. But mm. so I encourage students, like, be very mindful of where you get your advice the same way you are mind, you know, you should be mindful of where you hear your news or what you trust or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so yeah, I mean, I think that it can be sort of a, a hotbed for anxiety. And so my goal is always to, you know, provide proper education to our students and make sure to, like I said, validate their anxieties. Okay, let's talk about, is this real? Is this not? Why do we think that? And so on. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot that goes into 
you know, assisting students who might be getting bogged down with what they're reading on forums. And there you have it, folks. Avoid social networks like the plague. I mean, of course, it's a little more complicated than that. And there's a lot of good that can be had from support and communication with other people. But in general, it seems like a dangerous game to play. Anyway, Dr. Shamasian, what would you say is the role of an academic consultant? It's um, not just about the to-dos. You have to right. you have to keep students, you know, encouraged and, you know, be their cheerleader along the way and, you know, being the figurative shoulder to cry on when things are going bad. You know, like all of that I see as our job, you know, and um, and that's the way we like to support our students. I know when I was personally going through the MCATs and thinking about reapplying for myself personally, I never really feared about taking the MCATs again because I genuinely enjoyed the process, which sounds like a very crazy masochistic thing mm -hmm. to say, but I know my wallet would suffer greatly from another MCATs test. It's just that yeah. financially yeah, it's a beast. draining process. I think that also scares uh, students in getting consultants. Mm. Am I going to invest in something that I don't even know will bear fruit? Can you go through like an overall process of what your services provide for students? Sure. Yeah, it is. It's a non-trivial investment, right? So it's, uh, these aren't, you know, cheap services or anything like that. I completely understand. I mean, our job is to do, you know, is to assist you with getting into mental period mm. from freshman year for develop four year course plans, assisting you with identifying whom you might want to get, uh, rec letters from eventually, uh, making sure that, you know, you're taking the MCAT at the right time. Uh, making sure that we're tutoring you on the MCAT, helping you identify weak areas, both on the side of test content and test strategy, and, you know, delivering live tutoring to see how you end up at wrong answers and your patterns and errors, because everyone has a pattern and errors, whether or not you know it. Um, mm. But beyond that, making sure that on the application, develop an overall application theme will assist you with, you know, brainstorming, outlining and editing all of your essays from your personal statement, which is the foundation on down to your work and activities and secondaries will assist with, you know, Casper prep and interview coaching geared towards specific schools. We have a lot of notes about what specific schools look for um, and, and everything, you know, update letters, waitlist letters, letters of intent, whatever the case might be, uh, we help our students with. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things where sometimes people wonder, well, can I do it alone? Yeah, maybe, uh, you know, and some mm -hmm. students do. The question is though, like, is it worth it time and money? Well, I can watch a YouTube video on tiling my bathroom, but I'm probably not going to do it as well. It's going to take me mm -hmm. just as much time. I might screw it up. Um, all these kinds of things. Right. And so there, there is a lot of value in making sure that someone who's an expert in this is walking you through it step by step so you don't miss anything. We were talking before we started recording, Tim, you're like, oh, Casper, I didn't know about that. So like, these are the things you don't have to know what to ask, right? Mm. Essentially making sure that you have a source you can go to that guides the process. So um, of course, you know, I recognize my bias here, but given our students track record, you know, I feel I feel very confident that, you know, getting the right guidance will be super beneficial to anybody out there. I think oftentimes when we look at physicians or we look at mentors, we sort of ask them what they can do for their clients, but not often do we ask them what can their clients do for them. So do you have any recommendations for students on how to best capitalize on their consultant agreement? and what personality traits that they should really strive for? Or, or are there any pet peeves that you've dealt with with students where you're like, ay, 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 like, I'm going to 
have yeah. a difficulty with the student? Biggest thing is trust. Mm. You know, I think that sometimes, you know, some of the challenges I've experienced have to deal with, you know, lack of trust kind of thing. Mm. No matter how many times you do it, no matter how expert you are, you help someone with an essay, they show a friend, friend gives their opinion, student freaks out. Mm. You know, and, and that's the thing. And then, you know, you have to make sure, you know, obviously to develop, you know, rapport that there's a trusting relationship, all this kind of stuff. But if you keep showing it to people, get different feedback, you can say, oh, are you sure you said it was okay? This other person didn't say it's okay. And that you can start spinning your wheels mm. or, you know, something else apply to this list of schools. While online, I looked at, you know, this school looks for this and I'm worried. I don't think I'm, so it's, it's more so about, you know, when you hire an expert, if there's trust there, follow the lead is my, mm -hmm. is my advice, right? Because chances are we're considering variables you might not have. You can ask questions about why we recommend certain things. I think that that's a great thing to do, but ultimately we're here to help and we have your best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, my advice would be to put your, yourself in, in their hands, um, you know, and, and, and listen to the guidance, because if you do, chances are you're going to be all right. So for real, we just got to trust. Diligence and practice precedes rationality, and sometimes you just got to do what you're told. Given the vulnerable nature of a student-tutor relationship, it's easy to see how someone might be combative or prideful. It's honestly so difficult to wrestle with your self-image when you're potentially not outputting the best of scores and etc. But sometimes it is best to just trust that your instructor has your best interest. Of course, we should always stay inquisitive and ask questions, but perhaps you could frame it in a way that isn't accusatory or defensive. Ultimately, you getting a better score is a battle that your instructor and yourself do together. So some cohesion and peace is warranted. What's the hardest part of your job? Mm -hmm. Hardest part of my job? Um, it's more so being willing to assist students with the emotional distress in addition to the application. The application know-how is the know-how you know, mm -hmm. done it so many times and know that every nook and cranny of the application. But for that student, it's their first time. Or if it, they're a reapplicant, it's their second time, which is mm -hmm. in some ways more stressful. And so putting aside my perspective and experience in some ways of like, like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know they're going to be fine. But you're not you don't want to just say like, you're gonna be fine. God, you don't have to worry all that kind of stuff being being in there with them and mm. sort of having empathy is what it comes down to understanding what their experience is yeah you might have done it a thousand times multiple thousands of times but for them it's the first time and it's their life it's not a it's not an idea to them it's mm. their life and not that it's hard to do that for me it's just something that i like to remind myself all the time and Dr. Shamasian brings up a point that I wrestle with a lot, and that is the pursuit of consistency. In every interview question where I've been asked, what do you think is going to be the hardest part of this job or this profession? I never really state the logistical concerns or time demands, but I always refer to the concept of resetting myself every day and approaching every day and every interaction with my best. And I think I'm slowly beginning to transition my perspective of this reality is not daunting, but rather exciting. I love it. I know that you personally from my superficial research are a food connoisseur you mm -hmm. like food and so That's i was true. wondering maybe 
if you could walk the walk and try to somehow craft your love of food and dishes into a potential works and activities that, or like, how would you frame that? How would you work that into your application so mm-hmm. that you could get accepted into a hypothetical medical school? So first things first, you don't want to oversell stuff when you talk about mm-hmm. a hobby. Um, what do I like? If it feels forced, like I love eating different, you know, ethnic foods and, you know, this has given me access to, you know, diverse peoples, which is the type of work I want to do as a doctor, you know, like, like a for, you know, like lifting weights and the commitment I have to weightlifting has really taught me that, you know, taught me, excuse me, that all good things are hard and, and require, you know, like, and like becoming a physician. Be <laughs> yeah. Like, like that kind of cheesy thing. So don't do that. Um, right. So be a person, like if you're going to talk about a hobby, just talk about what you enjoy about it. Be a person, um, mm-hmm. you know, like imagine you met. So I sometimes treat her as like, imagine you met this person at the adcom at a cafe and, and they're like, oh, like, what are you drinking? A latte. The reason I like a latte is because it takes a lot of practice to get it right. The milk temperature, the art on the latte. And so this kind of, you know, commitment to excellence is really the kind of commitment I want to show on my way to be a doctor. Like you would never say that to someone at a coffee shop. <laughs> right. So why would you right. write that in an application? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so be a person, you know, I probably just talk about um, where my, you know, interest in food stem from, you know, watching my mom in the kitchen, cooking a lot of like Lebanese or Armenian dishes and, you know, watching a lot of the food network and being exposed to sort of different dishes and wanting to try them all. And then, you know, growing up in LA and how I'm exposed to so many opportunities to eat delicious things um, and just how something, you know, I've enjoyed and people come to me for advice on where to eat. And I love cooking and entertaining. And so just being a person, what does it say about me? I like to, I like to explore stuff. I like to taste new things. I like to be hospitable and invite people over and cook me. That's, that's what I would talk about. I wouldn't talk about being a doctor. I'd just be a person. Um, And so just be real is uh is my takeaway from that just be real super dope walking the walk um do you have any slept on dishes that you feel like not many people know about but definitely deserves more recognition as a category i think ice cream is the best dessert in the world um but uh but a dessert that people might not have tried that i wholly recommend is uh kanefe it's Mm. it's basically like a crispy cheesy sweet dessert from the Middle East, people should check that out and look for it if they haven't had it. So your boy isn't the type to just listen to something and not do anything with it. Since Dr. Shamasian suggested Kanefa, I took this opportunity to not only try a new dish and experience, but I also took this opportunity to surprise my girlfriend with a date to a local restaurant and get some brownie points. Anyway, the restaurant is called Alibaba Grill and it is absolutely great. If you're ever in the Colorado Boulder area, you should definitely stop by. Anyway, I decided to order some meat combo thing. My girlfriend decided to get a vegetarian dish and then we both decided to get some Kanefa per Dr. Shamasian's suggestion. Here's our reaction to trying Kanefa for the first time. All right, Dr. Shamasian, we'll see. Oh, dude, this is dope. Yo, that is so good. So good and like, I've never tried something like this before. Now, after our first impressions, we decided to have a little food review in my car. So here's the honest review. Okay, I have a question for you, my love. What? Can you stop the car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. So. <laughs> I have a question first. <laughs> start the car. <laughs> How was 
the canetta. It was really, really yummy. And I liked the like stuff on the outside, mm. which I Googled and it said it was shredded dough. And yeah. I think it was really balanced and like mm. it wasn't too sweet. I'm not a sweets person. I'm a savory dude. Do you think that Dr. Shamasian gave a good suggestion? I do, yes. Yeah. Do you think it's better than ice cream? Mm, no. <laughs> so Dr. Shamasian <laughs> was right on all accounts. All right. <laughs> you heard it from us. Now, after Dr. Shamasian and I started talking about great desserts, I eventually got around to the topic of my own lack of success with the application process and wanted to wonder when and how we should get started with the next step. I personally have not received any interview invitations until, okay. well, I mean, I still haven't. And it's February 21st, 2022. At what point do you feel like, oh man, you should be worrying or maybe you should just try your hand at consulting? Immediately. Um, mm. There's nothing good that comes from waiting at this stage. Mm. So if you get, so I think sometimes it's psychologically, speaking of psychology, I think it's psychologically difficult for some people to start working on their next cycle because mm. it feels like they're throwing in the towel and giving up. But that's not what's going on. You're just, mm. it's like, uh, you know, you, you still hope that you'll get in this cycle, but you don't want to be in a position where you waited till April didn't do anything maze around the corner you're like oh, i don't think i'm gonna get it i should get started now you're behind the eight ball you got to do it quickly mm. and so my thing is like what's the harm in moving forward in thinking about what extracurriculars to strengthen to writing your essays for the next and there's no harm if mm. you get in tim what's going to happen let's say you wrote your personal statement again and you ended up getting in are you going to say damn it i can't believe i wrote another essay Right. This is the biggest way you're going to be parting. You're going to be so happy you got in. You're not going to be pissed off about, you know, writing another essay. Right. right. But on the flip side, if you don't write <laughs> the other essays and now it's May, you're going to be kicking yourself. Right. Mm. And so my, my advice is move forward, look ahead, mm. you know, by waiting and twiddling your thumbs and clicking on Reddit to see interview updates. And I heard, you know, Rush gave out more interviews you know, that kind of thing and holding out hope, whatever. It does you no good. If mm. you're going to get in, you're going to get in. If you're not, you're not. So look ahead always. What great words of advice. Oftentimes, I really try and reflect on my interactions with my guests, but this one happened to be what I needed in just the right moment. What Dr. Shamasian said really hit home for me, and maybe that's exactly what some of our listeners or you might need to hear right now. In the pursuit of vulnerability, I personally have decided to take my next steps and Literally at the time of writing the script, I just got two emails back with regards to two medical assistant positions. And I'm super excited to share that with all of you. It just feels like after the battery of COVID in life, feels like I'm finally gaining some movement and I hope that can happen for you all as well. Anyway, with that being said. What great words of advice. And then the last question and a segue to it is any advice you have in general for medical students that are or pre-medical students that are currently going through the application process or just trying to pursue medicine in general hang in there uh it's probably my biggest thing you know mm -hmm. get good information and hang in there you know there are a million to do's you know when you're first year second year what clubs to join what research to do etc take it step by step find good mentors ask good questions develop a plan and hang in there it mm -hmm. will be stressful it will rattle your confidence at different stages. 
chances are if you're pre-med, you were probably at or near the top of your high school. You know, all those things are true, but you know, being pre-med can uh, kind of throw you for a loop sometimes. And so you're going to have to develop that resilience. Um, so yeah, get good information, stick to a plan and hang in there. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shamas. This was so awesome. Thank, thank you, you so Sam. Much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. In conclusion, we learned about the crazy paths that our lives can ultimately follow by gaining insight on Dr. Shamashian's own journey to becoming an academic consultant. We learned more about not isolating people or reducing people to their conditions. We talked about the grayish approach to mental health with your application and the ever complicated yet present conversation about reverse discrimination. We went over the power of an internal locus of control. We learned to try and avoid using social media for information, but instead have learned to refer to certified and professional consultants. We discussed the role of an academic consultant and the need for students to trust their mentors and guides. We touched on the topic of consistency and its difficulty, we figured out that we just need to catch our breath and make the next move because the time is now. And we got to do all of that while also getting some brownie points with the lady friend. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like button, comment, subscribe, rate. It really helps. If you didn't enjoy the podcast or you just feel like some constructive feedback is warranted, please also comment below. Anyways, this is the Asclepius podcast with your host, Slipathy Shu. The next episode, we'll be talking about what it's like to be a radiologist with guest speaker, Dr. Nancy, MD. Super stoked for this one.